Our Father in heaven, thank you for your word that you have given us. I pray at this time that we would bow our hearts and our minds to what you have to say for us. And that, uh, and that you would speak to us with great power. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. And please open your Bibles to Matthew chapter 6. Matthew 6, we'll be taking up verses 25 through 34 this morning. Matthew 6 and verse 25. Therefore I tell you, do not be anxious about your life, what you will eat, what you will drink, nor about your body, what you'll put on. Is not life more than food and the body more than clothing? Look at the birds of the air. They neither sow nor reap nor gather into barns, and yet your, your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not of more value than they? And which of you, by being anxious, can add a single hour to his span of life? And why are you anxious about clothing? Consider the lilies of the field, how they grow. They neither toil nor spin. Yet I tell you, even Solomon in all his glory was not arrayed like one of these. But if God so clothes the grass of the field, which today is alive and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, will he not much more clothe you, O you of little faith? Therefore, do not be anxious, saying, What shall we eat? What shall we drink? Or what shall we wear? For the Gentiles seek after these things, and your heavenly Father knows that you need them all. But seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. Therefore... Do not be anxious about tomorrow, for tomorrow will be anxious for itself. Sufficient for the day is its own trouble. So we find ourselves with this passage in the context of Jesus' Sermon on the Mount. It's important to know what is taking place here. Matthew records for us that right before Jesus gives this Sermon on the Mount, that he proclaims, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Now that's bound to get people's attention. And it definitely did. Matthew tells us that Jesus went throughout the region of Galilee. He was teaching and he was healing all sorts of afflictions. And so what's happening there is Jesus is demonstrating the very power of the kingdom. He's demonstrating that the king indeed has arrived. And all of scripture pointed forward to this time. All of scripture pointed forward to the time when the kingdom of heaven would come to us. When the king would arrive and would change everything. So obviously there's a great stir with everything that Jesus is doing. So great crowds are beginning to follow him. So Jesus goes up on a mountain. Crowds are gathered around him, but especially the disciples are at his feet and he begins to teach him what it means to live under his reign in the kingdom. And that's what we have in the Sermon on the Mount. It was for his disciples then, but not just them. It's for his disciples. It's for his followers now. And there's a theme that runs throughout the Sermon on the Mount. It's the theme of kingdom righteousness. Jesus is describing what it means for his community of people to live under the gracious rule of God. And we see throughout the sermon that theme of kingdom righteousness. We see it in the Beatitudes. In the first and the last Beatitude, Jesus is very clear that the kingdom is a present reality for his followers. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who are persecuted, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And even in the the middle of the Beatitudes, we see Jesus saying, Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for kingdom righteousness. Throughout the sermon, everything that Jesus taught 
is in context of kingdom righteousness. His teaching on murder and anger, lust and adultery, divorce, what it means to love your enemies, all of this in the context of kingdom righteousness. And within the Sermon of the Mount, we find the Lord's Prayer. And even that, within the Lord's Prayer, Jesus teaches the disciples to pray that God's kingdom would come, his will would be done. And as his will is done, we understand that to mean that we would know his will and gladly obey his will, kingdom righteousness. But then within the sermon, one of the major, one of the major commands of the sermon we find in verse 33, our passage this morning, seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness and all these things will be added. So we see within this that God is calling us to live a very different life. To understand what it means to advance kingdom righteousness also means for us that we will not be anxious. And we see this in verse 25. Jesus says, therefore, I tell you, do not be anxious. Even the first word, therefore, connects us with the previous passage. Jesus had just finished teaching his disciples. There's, There's two treasures, treasure on earth, treasure in heaven. We're to lay up the treasure in heaven. And there's two masters, and Rick had mentioned this during their dedication of tithes and offerings, that one of the masters, money, seeks to master us. And Jesus is saying, no, there's two masters. There's that of money and possessions, but there's also God as our true master. And Jesus knows who he's talking to. He's talking to his disciples. They will follow him. They have made that decision. And so the reality is, Jesus is saying, don't look back. You've chosen wisely. Don't look back at false gods of money, possessions, anything else. Follow the true and living God. And so within this, in verse 25, we see the first command of, I tell you, do not be anxious. And the word anxious is used in this passage. In these 10 verses, the word anxious is used six times. Three times, it's a direct command, do not be anxious. I think Jesus is trying to tell us something. And it's, the word is not necessarily profound. It's uh, fairly basic. Do not be anxious. It's kind of what it means. Do not worry. Do not be fearful. And so Jesus says, do not be anxious about your life. And he goes on, what you'll eat, what you'll drink, about your body, what you will put on. So he's saying, don't be anxious about your life. He's going from the greater to the lesser. In other words, if God takes care of your life, the greater thing, he'll also be in the details. You don't have to worry about the details of life, what you'll eat, what you'll drink, what you'll put on, any of that stuff. Because when we are, when we're anxious about those things, we're actually distracted. And there's a great uh, encounter that illustrates this very well. It's the encounter of Jesus with Mary and Martha. If you recall, Jesus is in their home teaching. Mary and Martha are sisters. Mary is sitting at Jesus' feet, taking in everything he had to say. Martha is busy scurrying around the house, getting everything prepared. And she's finally frustrated with Mary for Mary's having and enjoying her downtime. So she tells on Mary, or she tells on, yeah, Mary, essentially. She says, Jesus, don't you care that my sister has left me to serve alone? But listen to Jesus' reply. He says, Martha, Martha, you are anxious and troubled about many things. But one thing is necessary. Mary has chosen the better way. See, Martha was distracted. 
It's actually the, a great, the essence of this term to be anxious. Part of it is the reality of distracted. And Jesus is saying to, to Martha, he's saying to us as well, do not be anxious, do not be distracted, because when you are, it will take you away from what it means to live in God's kingdom, to pursue kingdom righteousness. The problem is there's much for us to be anxious about. If we think about the world around us, even a short list includes the economy and our finances. Are we going to be taken care of? Could be our health. The reality of will we be okay there? Even the stupid New Year's resolutions that we're already failing to keep. There's so many things that we can be anxious along the lines of health and fitness and appearance, attraction. And as far as look at the world around with terrorism, war on the world, much to be anxious about. And then there's family matters. Maybe it's strained relationships in marriage or with extended family, in-laws, the trouble that we can have there. And with our children, they can provide great anxiety. Will they be okay? Will they be safe physically? Will they, will they flourish spiritually? Will they be able to get a Division I scholarship in something to be able to pay for college? And even that, we, we joke, but the reality is, as I have growing kids, wow, there's so much to be anxious about. And there's so many things that are offered our kids. We can run ragged because we can be afraid. But if I miss out, if my kids miss out on this opportunity, they'll be left behind. Much to be anxious about. And it goes on, obviously, with work, with bosses. Much to be anxious about. Even the weather, all this talk global warming, yet there's three feet of snow out there. What do we do with that? Much to be anxious about. But in doing so, with our anxieties, the reality is we can push God out of the picture. But our anxiety is actually an invitation. It's an invitation to ask a deeper question. What is, the, what is at the heart of our anxiety? The very heart of our anxiety if we boil it down, it's a failure to understand that God takes care of those in his kingdom. We have the promise, but when we're anxious, we're failing to believe that God will take care of his own. And part of this has to do with control. There's so much that's out of our control. And so it makes us very fearful because we worry. Is anybody worried enough about control? Is God worried enough on my behalf about the things that are outside of my control? And the world's answer to this is various forms of positive self-thinking, positive thinking, positive self-help. But all of that falls short because it doesn't take into account an infinite personal God. So all the positive thinking that we can do apart from God will not answer the questions of what is the purpose of life and what is the meaning of life, especially when we go through hard circumstances and what is our ultimate hope? What's our ultimate destiny? It doesn't answer those questions. But the scriptures do answer those questions. And Jesus has an answer for us. He says, do not be anxious. And the sense of this world is, if you're in the habit of being anxious, stop it. How's that for news resolution? Just stop it. Stop being anxious. But thankfully, Jesus doesn't stop there. He actually goes on to give reasons of why we are not to be anxious. In his first one, we see in verse 25 at the end of it, he says, Is not life more than food and the body more than clothing? 
And throughout this sermon, we'll see Jesus asking various questions. He asks questions to get his disciples to think, to get us to think. He wants his disciples to see the world through God's lens. And so even with, with this question, yes, actually life is more than clothing. It is more than food. It's a gift of God. And if life is a gift, we have to recognize he hasn't thrown us on this earth randomly. That if God gives us the gift of life, and then on top of that, for those who are in the kingdom, if he's given us the gift of eternal life, will he not sustain us? Will he not provide immeasurably more than all that we need? The reality is God never leaves unfinished the work he started. What he has began, he will see that it comes into full completion. In other words, God is just simply not a procrastinator. It's not who he is. We can be certain that God has a plan and a purpose for our lives, and it will be carried out. But Jesus presses this point even further. If our question is, is God's care sufficient? Is he really in control? Here's, what, here's his reason. Here's what he has to say. In verse 26, he says, Look at the birds of the air. They neither, to- uh, they neither sow nor reap nor gather into barns. And yet your heavenly Father feeds them. He invites us to be able to understand, to be able to even look at the birds. And in fact, more than likely since he was, since he was on a mountainside, it could be that Jesus even pointed up. There could have been a flock of birds over his head. And providentially, because he's God, there probably was. So he points up to a flock of birds and says, look at the birds of the air. They don't, they're not concerned. They're not anxious. And your, their heavenly Father feeds them, takes care of them. Now, some have used this passage as, as an excuse to be very lazy, saying, well, hey, God takes care of us. But, that, but that's not the reality. The reality is that birds are very busy. The point is that it is God ultimately that provides for them. His grace is ultimately sufficient for them. And Jesus asks the question at the end of verse 26, are you not of more value than the birds? Then he goes on, verse 28, he says this, And why are you anxious about clothing? Consider the lilies of the field, how they grow. They neither toil nor spin. Okay, even here as he's talking about lilies, more than likely he's referring just in general to the flowers that would have been growing up around the countryside in Galilee. Beautiful flowers. He's saying they're not anxious either. They're not toiling. They're not working hard. They're not spinning or weaving their own clothes. It is God who takes care of them. Then he goes on to say, I tell you, even Solomon in all his glory was not arrayed like one of these. Verse 30, but if God so clothes the grass of the field, which today is alive and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, will he not much more clothe you? Okay, Jesus brings up Solomon in this account. As far as glory and splendor, as far as clothing, Solomon was an amazing example. He had the best that money could buy, had the best that man could design. Jesus is making a point. Even look at Solomon and all his glory pales in comparison to the form, the beauty of even a flower as God has designed it. And does God not care more about you than even the flower? And it is interesting what Jesus is doing here as he brings up flowers and grass of the field. Because throughout the Old Testament, a flower and grass would represent how brief life is, how fragile life is. 
One verse that might be familiar, Isaiah 40, 6 through 8, says this, The grass withers and the flowers fall, but the word of our God stands forever. And then turn, if you would, to Psalm 103. Psalm 103, starting in verse 13. As a father shows compassion to his children, so the Lord shows compassion to those who fear him. For he knows our frame. He remembers that we are dust. As for man, his days are like grass. He flourishes like the flower of a field. For the wind passes over it, and it is gone, and its place is known no more. But the steadfast love of the Lord is from everlasting to everlasting on those who fear him. The steadfast love of the Lord is from everlasting to everlasting. There's a contrast here. Though we can look at our life and from an earthly perspective, we can say, yes, life is brief brief, and it's fragile. It passes. And at the same time, but God is saying, ah, but not for those whom I love. It's from everlasting to everlasting my care. There is no, never any falter in my care. And in this section, Jesus asks us two very significant questions. At the end of verse 26, he asks the question, Are you not of more value than the birds? And then again, at the end of verse 30, Will he not much more clothe you? And the point Jesus is making is if he will take care of his lower earthly creation, the birds and the flowers... If he sees to it that they have great care, will he not much more take care of his children? J.I. Packer, in his book, Knowing God, makes a great statement about the care of our Heavenly Father. He says this, You sum up the whole of the New Testament teaching in a single phrase, if you speak of it as a revelation of the fatherhood of the Holy Creator. In the same way, you sum up the whole of New Testament religion if you describe it as the knowledge of God as one's Holy Father. Then he says this, If you want to judge how well a person understands Christianity, find out how much he makes of the thought of being God's child and having God as his Father. If this is not the thought that prompts and controls his worship and prayers and his whole outlook on life, it means that he does not understand Christianity very well at all. It's a great statement. The reality is, even as God's children, he does allow tragedy to happen. So what do we do with that? We can hear this and still be very suspicious because we know that hard times will come. In fact, it's been said we're either always either going into a crisis, in the midst of a crisis, or coming out of a crisis. And that may be true. But if we're in God's kingdom, we are promised God's everlasting care. We're not promised a carefree life. What we're promised is everlasting care. And look at who is saying this. Wouldn't Jesus know? As one commentator put it, said the shadow of the cross was looming over the Sermon on the Mount. It's reasonable to trust the Father in a dark hour because Jesus, our exemplar, did so as well. Within this passage, and there's another reason tucked into this section here, it's the fact of verse 27. And which of you, by being anxious, can add a single hour to a span of life? The reality is, 
that are our, our anxiety, the things that we worry about, gives us absolutely nothing except maybe an ulcer. That is the reality. At the end of this section, <clears throat> in verse 30, Jesus tacks on a very significant expression. He says, O oh, you of little faith. O oh, you of little faith. This is not the only time Jesus will refer to his disciples in that manner. O oh, you of little faith. Turn, if you would, actually just look over probably to the next page in chapter 8 of Matthew. In verse 23. <clears throat> Excuse me. Verse 23. And when, when he got into the boat, his disciples followed him. And behold, there arose a great storm on the sea. So the boat was being swamped by the waves. But he was asleep, he being Jesus, was asleep. And they went and woke him, saying, Save us, Lord, we are perishing. He said to them, Why are you afraid, O you of little faith? Then he rose, rebuked the winds and the sea, and there was a great calm. And the men marveled, saying, What sort of man is this, that even the winds and the sea obey him? So we see in this passage, Jesus is sleeping, but his disciples are freaking out because they believe that they're perishing. And Jesus says, oh, you have a little faith. Why are you afraid? Then look at um, <clears throat> Matthew 14. Matthew 14. Starting in verse 27, the context here, Jesus has sent his disciples out on the water. Jesus comes walking out to them. They're pretty Scared at this point, they think it's a ghost, they cry out in fear. We'll pick this up in verse 27. Immediately, Jesus spoke to them, saying, Take heart, it is I, do not be afraid. And Peter answered him, Lord, if it's you, command me to come to you on the water. He said, Come. So Peter got out of the boat, walked on the water, and came to Jesus. But when he saw the wind, he was afraid, and beginning to sink, he cried out, Lord, save me. Jesus immediately reached out his hand and took hold of him, saying, O oh, you of little faith, why did you doubt? And when they got into the boat, the wind ceased, and those in the boat worshipped him, saying, Truly, you are the Son of God. Jesus says, Take, take heart. Don't be afraid. It is I. Of course, Peter, as he's walking on the water, he takes his focus on Jesus, and he focuses it on circumstances. He begins to sink. Jesus says, O oh, you of little faith, why did you doubt? As well, Matthew in chapter 16. <clears throat> Matthew in chapter 16. The context here is Jesus had just recently finished feeding 4,000 men, the scriptures say, plus women and children, so way over 4,000 people, with seven fish and a few loaves of bread. And the disciples are later traveling by boat with Jesus to another location. And they're talking about the fact that they have forgotten bread. And what Jesus says, he turned to Matthew 16, picking up in verse 8. He says, but Jesus, aware of this, aware of their discussion, says, Oh, you of little faith, why are you discussing among yourselves the fact, the fact that you have no bread? Do you not yet perceive? Do you not remember the five loaves? For the 5,000, or how many baskets you gathered? Or the seven loaves for the 4,000, and how many baskets you gathered? How is it that you fail to understand that it was not speaking about bread? In all these accounts, Jesus is asking searching questions of his disciples. And he's asking searching questions of us, the disciples in the boat. Oh, you have little faith. Why did you doubt? Why did you fear? Do you not remember what I have done for you. 
So at times we have to recognize, why are we afraid? Why do we doubt? Why is it that we don't always remember? And the reality is, it's probably not that we have a lack of complete faith. It's that we have insufficient faith. Insufficient faith. I remember as a... uh, when I was a young believer, I had a couple of friends that were uh, in, a, in a heated discussion over some theological issue. And they were talking about it. And finally, I interrupted and said, uh, guys, you're talking about all this theology. God just calls us to have a childlike faith. Okay? We just need to love Jesus. That's what I said to them. My friend Greg turns to me. He says, uh, Chad... You don't have a childlike faith. You just have a childish faith. (laughs) Yeah, he hurt my feelings. But he was right. He was absolutely right. See, they were dabbling in theology, meaning the study of God. I was naive, thinking, I don't need that. I just need to love Jesus. Loving Jesus is all about growing in theology. He was right. I had an insufficient faith. There's a saying. The saying that I love is, the gospel is shallow enough for a child to play in. And yet it's deep enough for an elephant to drown in. I was in the shallow end. Insufficient faith. God is calling us to come out of the shallow end and into the deep end. And even our anxieties, the things that we fear so much, it's an invitation out of the shallow end and into the deep end to really deal with God in ways that he wants to deal with us. When we're anxious, when we're struggling... What God is calling us to do is to think it through. To think it through. He's given us the scriptures. He's given us the stories throughout and theology that we need to think it through. When you're anxious, what are your thought patterns? When you're anxious, what do you do with God? Do you tend to push God out of the picture with anxiety? Here's a question. In the quiet moments at the end of the day... When you're not thinking of what must be done, when your mind is not filled with activity and noise, do you feel pleasure or do you feel fear? If we wrestle and when we wrestle at times with fear as we think through the day or upcoming days, we've got to fight it with promises. And the scriptures contain many promises for us. Promises, for instance, within the Sermon on the Mount and the Beatitudes, blessed are those who mourn for they shall be comforted. The promise of Jesus that he gives in Matthew 11. Come to me, all who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Promise of Romans 8.28. And we know that for those that God love, that God loves, all things work out together for good. And in 8.32. He who did not spare his son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? And in our call to worship, we, we began with Psalm 46. God is our refuge and our strength, a very present in trouble. Therefore, we will not fear. And that goes on. That psalm ends with this. Be still and know that I am God. The Lord of hosts is with us. What promise? The Lord of hosts is with us. And yet at times it's still hard to be still. It's still hard to be still because we are like the disciples at times. We are anxious in the midst of storms and we think that we are going to perish. But look at Jesus. He's not anxious. He's perfectly calm because he knows 
He is in absolute control. We need to fight our fears with promises. And that's why Rick had mentioned uh, the scripture reading that we have. And I was told we actually have a bunch out there. It's great to be able to go through, and you might have your own plan. I don't want to micromanage your plan. But at the same time, it is great to be able to read through the scriptures. They're great plans. And, and maybe part of it is just even underlining as you go through your Bible, what are the promises that God gives to his people? Jesus goes on in verse 31. In light of all this, he says, Therefore, do not be anxious. In the sense of this word, I don't want to bore you with Greek lecture, but in the sense of this word anxious, rather than just stop it, is do not become, do not grow anxious. In light of all this, do not grow anxious, saying, What shall we eat? What shall we drink? What shall we wear? For the Gentiles seek after all these things, and your heavenly Father knows that you need them all. Okay, Gentiles, these are the people that were not chosen by God, not the ones that would have the promises of God. They did not know the scriptures. And it would make sense for those who do not know God that they would have a pessimistic outlook on life. So at times we have to ask the question when we're going through trials, what's our reaction? Is my reaction like one who does not know the promises of God? Or is my reaction like one who is a child of the king? If I'm in his kingdom, what is my reaction? For us, it should be great hope. And even Jesus goes on. He says this at the end of 32. And your heavenly father knows that you need them all. He knows. It's a wonderful statement for us. The scripture reveals to us that he knows even the hairs. He knows every hair on our head. That he knows Everything that we're going through, not even just the tough things, but even the motions, the depth of every emotion, he knows. He knows the depth of the suffering. He knows the heartaches. He knows every need. And he calls us to rest in him because he knows. And because we can rest, because he knows, we can call on him. During our seminary years, when we lived in St. Louis, the house that we lived in, had a driveway that as you enter in its level, but then it goes very steep incline downhill because our garage was actually tucked under the house for a very steep decline. And then it levels out for a second, but then our backyard was even steeper. And if you took a line from our driveway going down, as you got to the end of our backyard, you would end in one of two places, either a creek if you're Missouri, crack either a creek that had about a 10-foot drop with rocks at the bottom. Or if you missed that and you went slightly to the left, it's just a huge thorn bush. So either way, and these details might become important for the illustration, um, either way, it's, it's not going to be a good situation. And as parents, we were mindful of these hazards in our house. One day, I was out there in the yard. I was uh, talking with a college student. It was a nice day. My kids were out playing. Paige was an infant, so I had her in my arms. Peyton was over there playing by one of our strollers, a jog stroller, you know, the kind that can go really fast once it starts moving. So Peyton's playing around the jog stroller. I told him, Peyton, don't get in the stroller because your feet won't be able to touch the ground, and it might roll. Next thing you know, I'm back talking with the students. And I hear this frantic cry, Daddy, help! And there's a blue flash out of the corner of my eye. And it's the jog stroller. And it's heading down the driveway. And at that moment, I didn't even think. I laid Paige down on the ground, jumped over her, 
jumped over a short retaining wall, and I started sprinting down the driveway. And I'm no sprinter, but I had fire coming out of my feet. I'm running as fast as I can, knowing that if I don't catch the stroller by the time it hits the backyard, it's not going to be pretty. I get to the edge. Right as the stroller's about to go down, I dive for it. I happen to grab the handle. I tip over the stroller, paint myself. He's absolutely his most terrified look in his face. I've got grass stains all over my khakis. And at that point, very frustrated that none of this was caught on video. <laughs> it was a scene. But if you think about it, the minute in my story, the minute that Peyton cried out, Daddy, help. I did not pause and think, huh, told him not to get in the stroller. This will teach him a lesson. <laughs> or, my, he sure is high maintenance. None of that went through my mind. At that moment, the only thing on my mind is, my son needs help, and I will do everything I can to get to him. And I'm a sinful, earthly father. Now, think about our Heavenly Father. Did he really send his son to die in his place. And even that phrase, did he really? Introduce it that way because we have to be able to think even back to the Garden of Eden. What did Satan try to do with Adam and Eve to introduce doubt? Did God really say that you can't eat from the trees in the garden? In other words, God's not good. He doesn't care about you. Look, at, look he's trying to squash you. But no, we have to be able to combat that and say, did God really send his son to die in our place, only to not sustain us, only to leave us hanging, only to give us a miserable life? The answer to that is obviously no. It may be times that all we can muster up in prayer is daddy, is father, help. But that's enough because God knows. He knows our needs. Jesus gives a command here. He goes on. I mentioned before, there's three commands. Do not be anxious. There's one more command in this passage. And it's in verse 33. He says this. But seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. And all these things will be added. And the word seek, it means intensely, earnestly live for it. Seek it first. And Jesus models this for us. He actually models this early in the prayer. Or early in the chapter, in the Lord's Prayer. If you can flip back, chapter 6 and verse 9. Jesus is modeling what it means to seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and then trusting that things will be added. He begins the prayer, Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. He begins with the greatness of God, the fact that God is holy, he is in heaven. That should give us a great sense of awe, but yet it doesn't stop there. Our Father in heaven. He's a heavenly Father. This should give us a great measure of comfort as well. Your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Even here, Jesus is telling his disciples to pray, your, your kingdom come, your will be done. For Jesus, what did it mean for him to say this? What did it mean for him to pray this? It meant for him to take up the cross. That Jesus would have to take up the cross. He would have to suffer he would have to pay his life for those whom he loves. And he would have to submit himself in complete obedience to the Father. And it means the same for us. Jesus has called us to take up our Christ daily and follow him through whatever suffering, whatever trials, whatever that may bring. 
to sacrifice and serve our Lord. As well, seeking first the kingdom of God, it has to start inward with us. Even if we reflect back the Sermon on the Mount, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. We're to seek first inwardly to cultivate righteousness in our lives, but it doesn't stop there. Obviously, it goes out, spreads outwardly. Our prayer is that God's will be done as we live out and we speak out the righteousness, the grace of God into the world. That is our desire. And as well to be mindful, to seek for his kingdom to come, is to be mindful that Jesus will return. We are to be mindful of the fact that he will return again to make all things new. And that is our hope. That is our prayer. And then, following this, that is where Jesus says, Then give us this day our daily bread. If you notice, he didn't begin with that. It's first establishing who God is, our Heavenly Father, our confidence there, and then recognizing, oh, we can ask for him, for whatever we need. Give us this day our daily bread. And the promise is a great promise, that as we seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, all these things will be added. If I can paraphrase this one briefly, he's saying, seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and don't sweat it. Just don't sweat it. Realize Put things first, God first, his promise, he will take care of you. And this leads to the final command that Jesus gives. It's the command in verse 34 of do not be anxious. Again, the sense of that word. In light of all this, do not grow anxious. Do not become anxious. Do not be anxious about tomorrow. For tomorrow will be anxious for itself. Sufficient for the day is its own trouble. Yes, we can think about the future, we can plan for the future, but we are not to be anxious about the future. Sure, trouble will come. In fact, uh, we can think at times of trouble like Kansas snow. At times it may just seem to dump on us. But there's a reality that every day is a gift of God. And every day, yes, trouble, there will be trouble. But the promise is that there is a measure of grace for every day that God will cover over the grief with his grace. And that just as there is a quota of struggles for the day, more than that, there is grace that he will lavish on us to be able to get us through. So it's unwise for us to tack tomorrow's quota of struggles on today. There's enough grace today. There'll be enough grace tomorrow to carry us through. Now, Before I pray, quick homework assignment for those of you who are willing, and it's simply this, that this is a new year, and maybe this would be a good table conversation over lunch or dinner to ask the question, what were we anxious about? What were some of the major things in 2009? Maybe they're still going on, but what are some of the things we were anxious about, and how did we see God come through? And then for this year, what are we anxious about? What what is distracting us as a family? as individuals and to be able to mention that to pray for that so that when we see God come through we can celebrate let's pray together Father there is much for us to be anxious about in a fallen world but thank you for your promises that you never leave us nor forsake us thank you that your promises that there is great care thanks that we can look around at our general creation and see that if you take care of the birds and the grass and the flowers 
how much more value we are. So thank you. Thank you for that reality as well. Father, we all struggle at times with having, uh, being ones of little faith. So I pray that you would help us in our struggle, that we would not be uh, continuing an insufficient faith. Help us to grow in faith. Help us to be able to lay hold, claim your promises. Help us to grow in our understanding of who you are with, with your scriptures, the treasure that we have there to be able to look at your promises. Father, I pray that we would hunger and thirst for righteousness and that we would indeed seek first your kingdom, that you would help us to be aware and acknowledge and bring to you the things that are distracting us, the things that make us anxious, so that that would not get in the way of seeking first your kingdom and your righteousness. And therefore, as individuals and as a church, Father, help us to live for your glory and to take it not just inwardly, but that we would be ones to proclaim your grace and your glory to the world that so desperately needs it. And Father, as well, we thank you just for the, uh, not just obviously the struggles that cause us to cling to you, but thank you for the joys that we have in our life. Thank you for the gift of life. And even, even as saying that, the thought of Jason and Kelly Ross, the gift of their little girl that you've given them, Elizabeth. Thank you for a healthy birth and just, uh, and just that that family can celebrate. Pray that you would be with them in these days ahead. And Father, so we do give you great thanks for the comfort that your word brings us. And all this we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. And please stand for the benediction. Our response to the benediction will be to sing, Guide me, O thou great Jehovah. And now receive this as the Lord's benediction. Now to him who is able to do immeasurably more than all we ask or imagine, according to his power that is at work within us, to him be glory in the church throughout all generations, forever and ever. Amen. Guide me, O Thou great Jehovah, pilgrim through this barren land. I am weak, but Thou art mighty. Hold me with Thy powerful hand. Bread of heaven, bread of heaven, feed me till I want no more. Feed me till I want no Open now the crystal fountain whence the healing stream doth flow. Let the fire and cloudy pillar lead me all my journey through. Strong deliver, strong deliver, be thou still my strength and shield. Be thou still my strength and shield. And when I tread the verge of Jordan, bid my anxious fears subside. Death of deaths and hell's destruction, let me safe on Canaan's side. Songs of praises, songs of praises, I will ever give to thee. I will ever give to thee.
Go in peace.